Want to grow really, really fast as a Christian? In verse 3, Paul says, of the very young believers in Thessalonica, no more than a year old in the Lord, he says, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly. Growing exceedingly means beyond what would have been expected. What was causing this phenomenal growth? Well, look at the last word of verse 5 where it says, suffer. If you want two words to describe what causes faith to grow beyond what could be expected, in verse 4, Paul says, all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Suffering has a unique way of causing your faith to grow by leaps and bounds. In fact, it may be the miracle grow of faith uh, when you suffer. Apostle Paul arrived in Thessalonica and began preaching about Jesus from the Old Testament in the synagogue. People responded to the good news that their sins could be forgiven by God's Savior. A church was born. Paul was forced to leave after only three weeks with the new believers. Concerned for them, he was able to send Timothy back to check on them after a few months' time. When Timothy returned to Paul, he reported a vibrant, healthy church, but one with a few questions and problems. Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians to address some of those questions and problems. Several months had again passed. The Thessalonians were facing a more sinister spiritual crisis. Apparently, they had received a false letter with Paul's signature forged on it to the effect that the seven-year great tribulation had already begun and that they were in the midst of it. They were going through it. After all, they were suffering tribulation and persecution. Perhaps the dreaded day of the Lord had begun without their knowing it. Well, this letter says no, it hadn't and it wouldn't, not with them left on the earth. Uh, for example, 2 Thessalonians chapters 2, verse 1 and 2 say, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us as though the day of Christ had come. And so we'll get to it in chapter 2, but Paul says either by spirit, perhaps somebody was uttering a prophecy, or by word, uh, again, another word of uh, wisdom or word of knowledge, or by letter as if it was from us, meaning Paul, Timothy, and Silas, as though the day of Christ had come. He's very clearly saying, guys, you're not in the day of Christ. It hasn't come. The tribulation had not begun, they were not in it, and they would not go through it. In the world, they would have tribulation, but they would not be in the world during any part of the tribulation, and neither will we. Christians of the church age will be resurrected and raptured to heaven prior to any portion of the tribulation. Then we return from heaven to earth with Jesus in His second coming when He establishes the kingdom of God on the earth. What about the present suffering, which is real and full? Well, Paul took up the subject in the first five verses of chapter 1. He'll show you that suffering, especially for the sake of Jesus, has a spiritual purpose and that the enduring of suffering is what accomplishes that purpose. So verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God used three relatively ordinary men to change the eternal lives of the people of Thessalonica. These guys simply made themselves available 
and God did the rest. Uh, Paul had a, a very interesting background. We studied the life of Paul. He was, you know, looking back, you can see that he was uniquely trained and gifted in some ways. Uh, but even he said it was all nothing compared to the excellency of Christ in him. And so when we read about guys like this, um, God used them greatly. We should be excited about that. Uh, but they're just ordinary Christians. They're, they're no different than you and I. Uh, maybe they were called to a different ministry to make a, what we believe is a greater impact. I mean, how do you measure impact? How, how do you really do that? How, who knows who, what Christians have had the most impact on lives uh, over the centuries and all. Uh, and so think of yourself as, as one with these individuals, as a person that God has saved, as God is calling into ministry, and who can use. Just make yourself available for God. Now, from an earthly perspective, they were in the city of Thessalonica, but from a heavenly perspective, they were in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Their lives, including any suffering, were under the supervision of these two glorious persons, the sovereign Almighty God and His unique Son, Jesus. Further, we know that Jesus in heaven intercedes for us with His Father, and so all the way around we'd say that we're in good hands. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the unique greeting of the church. Grace, God's unmerited, undeserved favor. You're saved, of course, by grace through faith as a gift from God. Grace is also God's power. It's always sufficient for you in any suffering. You're not just saved by grace. You are sustained by it, uh, and you are to continue in it. Now, because of His grace in saving you, you can experience true peace. True peace is, first of all, peace with God in a personal relationship with Him that is made possible by Jesus Christ dying on the cross. Then it is the possibility of having the peace of God in your heart. The peace of God is a precious resource to suffering believers. Um, you've all experienced this at some level. You, you, there's something has been going on in your life at some point and after struggling and struggling, finally, the peace of God that passes all understanding comes into your life, and uh, your circumstances haven't changed, but you have changed because uh, God's peace is active in you. Now, we still haven't seen any purpose for suffering, uh, but here it begins in verse 3. It says, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. By the way, just as a, uh, an aside, verses 3 through 10 are one continuous sentence in the Greek. Uh, so those of you who have an English background, you might want to parse this out and criticize Paul a little bit for his run. Did you ever get criticized for run-on sentences? Yeah, that's all I ever did. But uh, uh, so one long sentence without a pause. Paul couldn't help but be thankful to God for what he was accomplishing through their suffering. Because of it, their faith was growing exceedingly and their love was abounding. I, I wonder if they realize this. Sometimes, you know, you can't see what's happening if you're right in the center of something. You have to have a different perspective. And so Paul heard about what was going on being a little bit more mature than them and understanding God's working in their life was able to say, hey, I'm so thankful 
that this is going on. There's a lot of unusual things when you're a Christian, aren't, isn't there? I, I mean, so Paul gets this report back from Timothy that uh, there's some trouble in the church and, this, and that they are actually being persecuted, going through suffering. Paul's first reaction is, oh, I'm so thankful. I'm happy about, not happy, but thankful about that because I know that that's going to cause your faith to grow. Let's look first at faith and then love. Faith should have two qualities. It should be genuine and it should be growing. Suffering accomplishes both of those. How do you know if your faith is genuine? Well, it's real when it becomes a way of life and of responding to life in the real world. When you continue in faith through suffering, it's genuine. Uh, and, and so, uh, you, you know, it reminds me of Peter one day a lot of Jesus' disciples were leaving him, and Jesus said, hey, are you leaving too? And Peter said, where else would we go? There's, you know, you're the Lord. I mean, maybe this isn't the ideal situation, but you're the Lord. We're, you and I are going to be in situations where we think, you know, Lord, what are you doing? I, I mean, I feel like I'm a reproach. I, I feel like I'm a joke. I, you know, everything I believe, nothing seems to be working. The non-believer's doing way better than me. Psalm 73 has become my favorite portion of Scripture, which talks about uh, the psalmist. He's complaining because the wicked are prospering while he is suffering physically and spiritually. Uh, and, and God says, well, uh, let's, you know, let's Try that faith. Let's see how genuine your faith is. Are you going to hang in there and press forward? The opposite can be said too. Suffering reveals false faith. Jesus told a parable in which seed fell on various soils. The seed represented the saving word of God. The soils represented the human heart. And then Jesus said, this is from Matthew 13, <clears throat> excuse me, he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Uh, and so Paul was able to look at the Thessalonians and say, hey, you, you guys have not stumbled in your faith. You have not fallen away. Suffering showed that their faith was genuine, saving faith that had taken root in their hearts. Now, the next purpose for suffering that Paul talks about here was its effect in the church. He says, your love abounds toward each other. Love, of course, not a feeling, but an activity of self-sacrificing serving of others. Their individual suffering had not made them selfish or bitter, but rather selfless and better. They went about ministering to one another in practical ways. And so this was a church where uh, love was abounding. Uh, people would recognize those who had had a difficult week or something terrible had happened, and they would rally around them in practical ways. You know, churches can be places where many Christians are lonely together in their suffering, or they can be vibrant with love as we reach out to one another. Uh, doesn't mean everybody wants to bear their heart or wear their heart on their sleeve or, you know, that kind of thing. We all have different personalities. Have you noticed we all have slightly different personalities? I, I have over the years. I, you know, keep hoping everybody will be like me one day, but, you know, 
It's just not going to come. Uh, so we're all a little bit different. Some people, they, they want to share everything that's going on. Other people, they don't. It's not about whether you share or how much you share. It's about an awareness that, uh, that life is difficult. And if life isn't difficult for you right now, it will be, or it has been. I mean, it, it just cycles like that. Um, and, um, you know, all the more because you're a Christian, and so we need to be ready to minister to one another. And not, we don't want to be lonely together in suffering. On the other hand, you know, it's interesting, um, and I think sometimes it's just me speaking out of turn, I guess, but, um, you know... Uh, this has happened over the years, and this happens in all churches. Two people will come to church, or two families will come to a church, and one family will just immediately get assimilated and meet people and have friends and, you know, think it's the greatest church on the face of the earth and, you know, thank you, God. And the other one will just kind of, well, you know, no one said hi to us, and we didn't feel, you know, in integrated into the church and all of that. Uh, and and I, don't, I don't even know where to assign fault. Uh, I, I don't know that there is any fault. Sometimes I think it's just God's way of leading people uh, in, you know, in, a, in a certain path. You know, maybe God doesn't want you at that church. If, you know, maybe, maybe he's just closing that door. I don't know. Uh, but it isn't, you know, it isn't their fault that one family is more gregarious than the other and one's more. It, it just, it's just the way things fall out sometimes. At the same time, I think we all should be more up to speed with this understanding that, hey, who can I minister to, and, and is there, do I have any opportunities to, to minister to somebody? I, use, uh, I haven't done it for a while. I'm remiss in it, but remember I used to, at the end of every service on Sunday, I'd say, find somebody you don't know and introduce yourself. Uh, you know, at least everybody will be introduced to somebody, uh, and sometimes you've met your best friends that way your best Christian friends just from chance meetings like that. So uh, be aware that people are suffering and uh, reach out to them. Suffering must be endured to accomplish its purpose, verse 4, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. And so Paul and his companions are boasting about them. God was doing a great work both in them and through them. Now, think for a minute about all the things you might boast about concerning somebody. Do you ever immediately think of boasting about how they are handling their suffering? I mean, you know, do you think, hey, I need to tell you something about Gene. That guy is getting crushed and he's just doing great with it. And you're like, what are you talking about? You know, you want to, we always boast about people's accomplishments and, you know, they won this or they're the champion of this or, you know, the, the under five division or whatever, you know, there's always something like that, but no, you know, nobody ever talks about, you know, we're, we're really doing great in our suffering. And Paul, I me mean, has such a perspective, I wonder if you're listening to this, if you're in the audience listening to this that Sunday in Thessalonica uh, and, and you think, wow, Paul. You know, this is not our perspective at all. I, we didn't think you'd be quite so thankful that we were suffering. And, but I guess if you're going to boast about us to others, uh, I guess this can be used as a testimony. Now, endure here is a key word. It's not the suffering itself that produces spiritual growth. It's our enduring it, especially enduring it with patience and faith. Patience means perseverance and especially sustaining hope despite difficulties. And faith here means faithfulness. It means you don't get flaky, you remain faithful. 
And that's hard to do because we grow weary in well-doing. We want to faint and back off. In fact, one of the things that uh, I, I think it's just a technique that, that we're taught by the world, but when a lot of times when things are getting tough, people have a tendency to want to retreat and think that they need to recharge their batteries. And so a lot of times a Christian will find himself in some kind of a trial and then they'll want to quit doing everything. Uh, and, and, you know, just kind of lick their wounds. And, uh, hey, I say you should volunteer for more stuff and get your mind off of that and start serving others. Uh, this idea that, you know, you need time to yourself, uh, you've, got, you've got too much time to yourself already, if you ask me. You need time with Jesus serving other people. The suffering we've been alluding to is now identified specifically as persecutions and tribulations. Persecutions are the hostilities you suffer from the enemies of God. Tribulations are the afflictions that their persecution inflicts upon you. And so, because of their faith, they were, um, uh, people were treating them with hostility, and it was uh, leaving afflictions uh, in terms of impoverishment and physical beatings and those kinds of things. And so verse 5, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. A little bit uh, strange wording here. Commentators have trouble with this, but it seems as though the righteous judgment of God is a reference to the coming great tribulation. That will be the time when he exercises his righteous judgment against sin upon the earth, giving men one final chance to repent and be saved. Their current condition of enduring suffering from the hands of non-believers Paul is saying that's strong evidence that the righteous judgment of God against non-believers is still in the future. And so basically all he's saying is, hey, if you guys are still on the earth suffering at the hands of non-believers, then you're not in the great tribulation because that's going to be a time when I am executing my righteous judgment. Oh, there's going to be persecution against believers as well, but it's going to be a, a very different type of persecution. Um, this is looking forward then to the day that Jesus Christ would return. The kingdom of God means the earthly kingdom that Jesus will establish when he returns to earth in his second coming. Our present suffering is preparing us for a future place in the kingdom. It's, it's a kind of training. It's the school of the Holy Spirit. In other words, your suffering is always significant. You're not always told why it's significant. You don't always know it's complete work in you. But you can be certain that it is important. Daniel LaRusso didn't know that painting Mr. Miyagi's fence and waxing his cars and sanding his deck in the Karate Kid was preparing him for a karate tournament. Do you remember that? I love that movie. I I'm sorry. You know, wax on, wax off, uh, paint the fence, sand the deck, you know. And he just thought he was being had giant deck, you know, all this painting, all these cars and all that. But all the repetitive movement got him ready for the blocks that he needed to be to defend himself in that ridiculous karate fight he had at the end and stuff. But it's still a feel-good movie. Uh, but uh, so that's the idea. You don't, you know, I, that's how I feel sometimes in my situations with the Lord, like it's a wax-on situation. You know, it's like, 
You know, I, I, I pray about something and the Lord says, oh, wax on, you know, and you're just like, you know, Lord, I've been doing this for a while now, you know, can you, I can at least do wax off, you know, and, and you don't always see the direct correlation. Now, we want to have that direct connection all the time. It, it's almost, I want to say it's almost, uh, it, we've elevated it almost to a need. We have to come up with the connection. This is why God let my tire go flat or wrecked my car or gave me cancer. This is the reason right here. And if we can't find a reason, then we invent one. We establish a new foundation or a new movement or, or some kind of a memorial. I'm not saying those are even wrong. Please don't get me wrong. But we want to have that direct connection. It, it, it becomes meaningful to us. God gave me uh, this disease so that this would happen. And when we can't make that connection, we start to falter a little bit. And I'm, I'm just here to tell you that your, your suffering is always significant, but you're not always going to make the connection this side of the millennium. And God's under no obligation to tell you why it is He's allowing certain things in your life and why He's not allowing other things in your life or why He's withholding some things. And it's not out of cruelty. Maybe, I don't, maybe it would be too complex. Maybe we wouldn't understand. Maybe it would be wrong for us to know. Every now and then I think... I have this weird kind of a sci-fi notion, like if I, could have, if I could see, 20 years ago, if I could have seen 20 years into the future and saw a, a scene from my life, would I have done things differently? And almost always the answer is yes. In fact, I want to do my whole life over again, tell you the truth. But, and so I don't know that God it, it can trust us with that kind of knowledge, but we can trust Him that He is faithful. And, and uh, that we can glorify Him and bring Him glory even though we don't see it in a cause and effect kind of a situation. Uh, now, you know, generally we can say, let's say a person dies and at their funeral lots of people come and we preach the gospel. Maybe people get saved or exposed. I mean, obviously that's a good thing. That's fantastic. But that's a situation where we're using the situation. Uh, you, you, you don't really want to say, well, God killed him so that you could have, he could have a funeral. Well, I don't know that that's true. However, if somebody famous came to that funeral and got saved, then we think, oh, okay, wow, okay, wow. Now we know what God is doing. And we just don't know what God is doing. And we don't need to know. We don't need to know. God's got strange ideas sometimes. Uh, my favorite, Old Testament, the children of Israel are crying out to God, help us, deliver us. We can't take it anymore. We're making bricks in Egypt. And God says, I'm going to deliver you 80 years from now. Well, Moses has to, 80 years and nine months probably, but, you know, Moses has to be born. He has to grow up in Egypt. He has to be run out into the wilderness so that God has a deliverer. That's how long it takes to make a deliverer. Did God want to deliver the children of Israel? Absolutely, but it takes 80 years to make a deliverer. And then a very imperfect deliverer, he never goes into the promised land, does he? He, fa he falls short because of his own anger issues. The meekest man on earth has anger issues. And so we just, you know, just, we don't need to nail God down on these things. We just need to follow Him 
and believe him and know that, you know, see him on the cross dying for us and know that he has our best interests in mind. Non-believers always see suffering differently than us. It's usual for them to think that there is no God because they think that suffering is evil or that God would stop it if he really did exist. But we know that there is value and significance in suffering. Ecclesiastes 7.3, by it the heart is made better. Let me give you an alternate translation of this verse. The Message Bible says, All this trouble is a clear sign that God has decided to make you fit for the kingdom for which you're suffering now. E.W. Rogers, in commenting on the phrase, you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, says this. This has to do with human responsibility. On the side of divine sovereignty, we have been made meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And this meetness is solely due to our association with Christ in his death and resurrection. We are graced in the beloved, altogether independent of anything in ourselves, either before or since we are saved. But God allows his people to go through persecutions and tribulations in order to develop in them the moral excellencies which make them worthy citizens of the kingdom. And so let's be a caring community that encourages one another to endure suffering so that our faith can grow exceedingly as we await the coming of the Savior for us. Amen.